0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you are an aspiring journalist and you're gay or queer or trans, then this is the episode for you, my friends, because my next guest is a badass video reporter and senior producer at The Wall Street Journal. But before I introduce my friend and former colleague, Jason Bellini, I want to make sure you're all signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that we send out bright and early on Mondays to give you the inside track on the five episodes we're dropping that week. Otherwise, you won't know until the day of whose episode is dropping. So even if you're subscribed, it is a great way to, to preview whose episodes you're definitely going to want to binge on during your morning commutes. Just head on over to Time for Coffee at the Time for Coffee website, time, the number 4 coffeeorg and sign up. Now, my friends, grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jason Bellini, who is a video reporter and senior producer at The Wall Street Journal. Jason has two decades of experience as a journalist working for CNN, MTV, CBS News, Bloomberg TV, and on and on. Jason has received numerous awards, including the 2006 Journalist of the Year Award from the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. Most recently, Jason has been the host and producer of a video series called Moving Upstream, in which he explores the trends, technologies, ideas, and challenges that are headed our way. In each episode, they visit the places and meet the people who can help us to better understand What's upstream? Jason, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go?
1: Yes, yes, indeed. I'm, I'm, I'm buzzed, I'm focused, <laughs> I'm ready to go. Andrew, thank you so much. It's good to be with you.
0: You know, Jason, I got to tell you, I was binging on moving upstream over the weekend. And what A fantastic show. I mean, thank you. The level of production, the depth of reporting is just exceptional, Jason.
1: Wow, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you. I can tell you, we've been working hard on this show. That's for sure.
0: Well, could you share with Java Junkies what moving upstream is and Also kind of lift the curtain a bit and share how many folks, how many colleagues are working with you behind the camera in addition to you being the on-camera talent and actually what it takes to produce these stories on the Wall Street Journal website
1: you bet delighted to talk about it so we're now in our second season and the first season was say, a bit of an experiment and it was really just me and one of colleague, colleagues matt mcdonald a uh, young producer and we went to work on this we were given the opportunity to do a longer Type program and it was kind of a, it was really blue sky kind of opportunity. What do you want to do? What do you want to make this? And the thought time was well. There's so many things that I'd love to explore. I've been doing a lot in the realm of politics, but I was just interested in what are some of the real underlying currents? What are some of the technologies and ideas that are shaping our world right like now? And begin digging in on some of those things. And so our first season, we, we ended up going to Asia for a month. We did a lot on robots. I became, we had developed a thing for robotics and the future of the workplace and how AI and robotics are shaping the future of, of employment. Asia was a fantastic place to go and to explore that. But a lot of the work that goes into this show, and most of it is in. The pre-production, figuring out what stories to tell and how to tell them. One of the biggest advantages that I try to exploit is working for the journal itself and having very collaborative colleagues all over the world with whom I can consult and who often are generous with sharing their contacts and help me Shape the stories that I'm working on. Will help me take a germ of an idea and turn it into something, and that's a, that's a huge advantage. And I'm delighted to work for an organization that is so collaborative. I've been other places where people hold their own contacts closer <laughs> to the vest and and yep. aren't so aren't so kind and generous, but it, that's been that's uh, I think allowed us to find some fascinating stories to tell.
0: So, how long does it take you to produce any? you know, given story that is among the upstream products that are on the website right now?
1: The answer is that it depends. So some stories will take, for example, one of the most recent episodes took us to Brazil for a story about gene-edited cattle. I don't know if you saw that episode. I
0: did. The Golden Uh, Calf.
1: The Golden Calf. Yes. Well, that was a piece that I've been working on for I don't know, six months. And let's say working on it. I made contact with this company and they told me about this, we met up with the CEO at a conference and told me about this, I became intrigued. And then it, the cap wasn't born at that point. And so then we were waiting to see if this cap was, at that point it, it might have been multiple only one survived. And then it was negotiating getting to go over there and keeping this as an exclusive story for us. They weren't going to, so they wouldn't tell anyone else. And we ended up going at the beginning of September to go shoot this story. And then once we were back, it took about four or five days to go through all the material, to write it, and then edited it in 10 days. Once we actually had the material, it was a fairly quick turnaround.
0: You actually had the birth of this calf. You had footage of that.
1: Yes, yes, we did. And I'm quite I'm quite proud that we did because that involved working with a freelance photographer, making the arrangements for them to be there. There's a lot of negotiation and coordination involved in each one of these pieces. They wouldn't let us be there for the birth. We wanted to be, but they've they've had this particular cloning ranch, had a bad experience in the past where they allowed journalists on site and then there was contamination that may have been because of the journalists were there and the animals died. Anyway, they were adamant we could not go ourselves. Then we had to wait. Several weeks. And I think it was mostly, they just wanted, they didn't want us to be there if the calf died and, you know, to be filming that and showing an unsuccessful experiment. Mm. So, yeah, but we were delighted that that footage worked out, that we were able to have that moment.
0: Well, it was such a fascinating story because this, as you said, was the first Angus calf to be gene edited to be heat tolerant. And you actually oh you really did watch it, didn't you? Oh, I did. Absolutely. Can you (laughs) can you share with Java Junkies why that is something that this particular company was working on?
1: They've had a number of projects in the gene editing realm. That's what they do. And the reason why they were interested in this is I mean they're they're their company. They want it's about ultimately about making money. They see a big financial opportunity. If they can take prime angus elite cattle from the United States and have them thrive down in the tropics where they don't do so well because of the heat. And down in Brazil, the, the meat goes for nearly twice the price when you prime angus beef. Now, the implications are much bigger than that. And we explore a little bit of that, but we didn't have time to get that into it that much. But climate adaptation for animals in general, that could end up being very significant going forward. If there are ways of doing that via gene editing, bringing animals that would otherwise not be able to survive in parts of Africa, other hot parts of the world. And then also, if we're talking about climate change, they talk about how climate change could be an opportunity in terms of these technologies, is that uh, you're going to need animals that are able to survive at temperatures that they otherwise wouldn't be able to.
0: Yeah. Another story. I saw, and you've already alluded to this, and this story in particular, I think, will interest Java junkies. The episode was entitled, The Robots Are Now Hiring.
1: Oh, yes. This was an interesting one. And credit goes to my colleague, Hilda Shellman. She came on for the new season, and she came on board with some really interesting ideas. And she'd actually been intrigued by this and been at some conferences where she was doing reporting on this to kind of tease out the idea that there are now companies that are providing services to Fortune 500 companies, companies all over the world, to help them be more efficient in their hiring and Interestingly, they're using artificial intelligence, machine learning to analyze video interviews. Now, video interviews, it turns out, and I've talked to a number of young people who've graduated from college and applying to jobs, and they're doing video interviews. I took one for a customer service rep, and I did hardly on it, where you're given a scenario, how would you respond to this? And you pretend like you're in that role, in that job, right? What you may not know, you probably don't know is that it could be analyzed by artificial intelligence before a human ever watches it, if a human ever watches that video interview. So what's that AI doing? Well, it's actually comparing you to the highest performers. And it's looking at your, and I love this term, micro expressions, the (laughs) micro expressions on your face, and seeing how your micro expressions square up to those of the highest performers, what your word clusters are, because it's not able to It's not sophisticated enough to really understand what you're saying, but it's able to analyze the words that you're using and see if those are comparable to the highest performers and then rank you. And the issue there, I mean, I think that raises a, a lot of issues from an ethical standpoint. One of them, obviously, is most people don't know that this is happening. Two, is this legitimate, this idea of word clusters and Micro expressions—is there is this real science? Some say yes, some say no. And three, I think that this is also worthy of discussion because is there a sort of like a common set of features that makes someone more effective? I mean, I think that there are a lot of times the outliers in life can be some of the best people and are those people being eliminated and really this is being used as a filtration device now higher view the company that we visited in utah that's that's one of the most popular platforms they say well no the the companies can watch all the interviews and be evaluated by a human and i asked well does that mean that everyone's going to watch? Why don't they just look at the top five? People are busy. They don't have time to watch everybody else. Watch the top five who've been ranked and choose from them. And they said, well, the companies can do that. And so I can only imagine that that's probably what's happening.
0: Yeah. I remember I saw that part of the piece and I think they said, well, maybe they'll watch your answer to a question. They're not necessarily going to watch the whole interview, but maybe they'll look at one piece of it. And I thought that piece in particular, Jason, it looked like it took a lot of time. And there was a fair amount of post-production that was involved in pulling it together. Do you remember how long that took you, the whole sort of soup to nuts process to get it on the web?
1: I'd say well, when, after we shot all the material, and we, we visited several locations for doing this. Then I think by about three weeks or so, the most challenging part of the process was not in the actual editing of the video and putting together the animations and the graphics. It was the reporting itself and the journal. It's a challenging place because the standards are very high, and I, I know it's true of other news organizations as well. But I mean, they're incredibly tough. You're subjected to a lot of a rigorous review from our standards department. This one didn't have that many legal issues involved, but you're challenged by your colleagues to make sure that you are really like, everything is locked down and absolutely correct. And the journal also has a policy and it's a very strict policy, which I respect, It's called the no surprises policy. And what that means is anyone you mention, any individual, any company, institution that you mention, they should not be surprised when they see in the Wall Street Journal or watch a Wall Street Journal video themselves mentioned, Mm. right? You need to reach out to them, give them an opportunity to respond, to comment, to clarify. And that takes a lot of work. So if someone mentioned it's that's just what I'm saying in the story, but if someone else, if someone we're interviewing mentioned a company that they were applying to, well, we have to reach out to that company and, and try to find out, OK, is this true? Did they actually apply to them? What does the company say? Did they apply this technology? And so it takes a lot of work to nail all that stuff down and to adhere to that policy.
0: Yeah, definitely. Jason, take us into a typical day, and I know you're a journalist, so there really is no typical day, but to the best of your ability, what would we be seeing if we were kind of a fly on the wall watching you as you go through your day at the Wall Street Journal?
1: Typical day. Okay. Well, I first wrestle with my alarm clock, <laughs> and we, we, we battle it out, usually for a good hour or so, because I set it... For an unrealistic time. I say I'm gonna wake up at seven AM and it's trying to make that happen. And then he usually doesn't wake up <laughs> until about eight. And then I'd go get first cup of coffee and I'm reading in on the news. Cause I know that once the day gets going, I'm not gonna have an opportunity to really kind of sit down and read articles and know what's going on in the world. So I, I try I value that time. So usually it's I get myself an hour to read what we call it reading in. Mm-hmm. And once I've done that, then it's Tackling the mountain of emails, I try to make that the first thing. But unless there's anything more urgent, and it's a lot of times, I'm working on usually what five, six stories at once, and so there's incoming traffic, things that need to be dealt with on those stories, and so that that honestly (laughs) takes a couple hours of my day. Sometimes it's just dealing with, you know keeping these stories on track, keeping them moving, responding to sources, asking questions, doing the back and forth. Then I'm oftentimes delving into a script. And sometimes it's multiple scripts. We've got new material that just came in. Okay, I need to watch that. I need to find the best moments in that and figure out how that fits into the story. I'm coordinating with a video editor, coordinating with the producer of the piece. And from there, it's just... I feel like I'm just on the treadmill. You crank it up to 10 and I'm just running, running. If I'm lucky, I'll race downstairs, third floor, grab some lunch, eat at my desk, and it's just go, 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 go. And phone calls. I usually have several phone calls scheduled during the day, four or five different calls, maybe related to the story I'm working on now or maybe related to a story that seems like it might have potential six months from now. So you got to keep priming the if you want to have stories for the future. Now, you can't just worry about today. You got to be worried about six months from now as well. The day keeps going on and on and on. If I'm lucky, I'll escape to go down to the gym for an hour. I haven't been as successful with doing that lately. I've just been too busy. Oftentimes, we're coordinating to trips and travel. And then before I know it, it's what, 7, 8 PM? And I realize, OK, all right, I'm exhausted. Time to go home and whatever the evening will bring. And rinse, repeat. That's a that's tactic, it's, 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 it's it's but fun. It, but it's a lot of fun.
0: I would think that one of the skills that is essential to be the kind of a journalist that you are, because there, of course, are folks who just do one story or maybe five stories in a year, right? But to be the kind of journalist that you are who is doing long form pieces, but has five in process at any given time is you need to be one hell of a multitasker.
1: One hell of a multitasker. And also, I don't think it's possible without really using the calendar well. I basically look at the stories that I'm working on and it could be five, 10 things. I'll go through each one of them. They're like, okay, what can I plug into my calendar today to keep that one moving, to keep advancing that one? I don't have an assistant. I'm my own assistant. I've got to schedule my time and make sure that there's things that are locked down. Otherwise, just the, the normal chaos of the day will interrupt and you'll never get to those things.
0: When you say use the calendar well, do you mean like Google Calendar or
1: what What type yeah, of calendar? We're on the Google suites, which I love. And yeah, any calendar will do, I'm sure. And that is plugging in phone calls with people, plugging in. I, I, I even set time to prepare for an interview. I'll say, okay, I need to give myself an hour for this. and I'll put that on the calendar rather than just have a, a to-do list. The things on the to-do list don't get done unless there's time allotted for them. And I find it most effective to be really scheduled with my day, setting aside Thirty minutes to do expense reports and putting that on the calendar. Otherwise, I won't get to them. And oftentimes, even when they're on the calendar, I don't get to them. But at least there's a fighting chance if they're scheduled in.
0: That is such great advice.
1: I wish I held to my advice more, but I just I do to a degree. But it's life happens all the time, and so you know that's the nice thing about the calendar. You can take that block of time and you can move it down. You know, move it to later in the day or move it to the next day. But it's still there. It exists. And then, you know, you got to do it.
0: So, Jason, I remember you when you were, frankly, a young Java junkie running around the world working for CNN with a handheld digital camera and a laptop. You were a one man band, what we called back then and probably still do today, producing all kinds of cool stories. How did that begin? Was that your idea to do that or did someone else suggest it to you?
1: All right, well, I'll tell you the story. One of the initial inspirations was Anderson Cooper, because when I was in high school, he was on Channel One News. This is the show for high school students. And he, at that time, had some stories that he did that he shot with a small camera. This was even before the really good broadcast quality ones came along. Then when I was in college, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I was studying history at Georgetown and I read about a camera that had come out. It was the VH1000, VX1000, whatever it was, from Sony. And it was supposed to be the first like broadcast quality small camera. It was $4,000, a lot of money for a college. Oh, yeah. So I asked my grandparents, I said, can you loan me the money? I never paid them back, but, and they, they agreed to it. And so I started going out and shooting stories with it. And at that time, there wasn't a good way to edit them on a computer, right? You had to put it onto tape and you had to go tape to tape. It was a nightmare. And there's a production house in DC that I was doing freelance work for as a production assistant and so I would go in on the weekends or sometimes late at night when I could get on the equipment and start putting together stories try to keep this short I graduated from college I wanted to then sort of just go be a, a one man band galivanting around the world and doing stories well I tried that for a month and I lived out of a van for a month and I realized this is insanity I don't know what the hell I'm doing I you know I I'm totally cool. this is absurd I'd been an intern at CNN one summer applied to be entry level there and so once I was in the door at CNN I Continue to go out whenever I had a chance to go try to shoot my own stories and use the equipment there at CNN to edit them. Then there was this show that they had at the time. It was called CNN Newsroom. It was a show for high school students, and I started pitching ideas to them and put some stories together, and I got a couple on the air. And I was, it was a thrill. I mean, it aired at five in the morning, and teachers would record it and then show it in their classrooms. Right? Then the war in Kosovo broke out. This is 1999, if I recall correctly. I was like, I am going to go. This is a moment when I just need to go there. I need to get there. And so I told my boss that I was going on vacation for two weeks. I didn't tell her what I was doing. And I came up with this whole scheme to get myself over there, involved getting on a military cargo plane, riding the back of a cargo plane and flying into Albania. And then once I was there, I showed up at CNN's doorstep, that this was in Albania, and said, Hi, I'm Jason. I worked for the show, The Newsroom. And went out and started shooting stuff with my camera, and... I remember bringing stuff back to some of the correspondents and, and I was a bit of a daredevil. I was reckless in the way I look back at it now. I didn't know what the hell I was thinking, but I would go and, and go get stuff. And I remember one time I went out for two guys, like, I want to spend two days when, with a refugee and just see what it's like to be a refugee. And I sort of rode with them and they were like, where the hell were you? I, I, we were out of touch with you for two days. I told you I was going to be away. I was going to fall refugee. Anyway, I came back with material and then I would just share it. Rather than doing stories for that show, I did a couple for them, but I was giving it to the reporters. I'd be like, hey, I got this material. You want to use it in your piece? And they're like, yeah, this is, this is this is interesting. Yeah, we'll take it. Ultimately, I was asked to stay over there. So I ended up staying for about six months. And that's where I really learned how to be a journalist and what it was to be working in a field. I got to work with some of the best photographers, producers, correspondents that CNN has. And they have some great ones. And so I did that and came back. And then I wasn't sure what to do next. I wasn't going to go back to ripping scripts and running the teleprompter. But MTV was starting a team. was going to cover the 2000 election and uh, i applied and they were looking for someone who could do what i did which is you know be a one-man band go out and they thought this is this is a new technology these cameras that allowed someone to go out and run around and produce broadcast quality material by him and herself right so did that for a year and then during that year now, I made a little bit of money while I was in Costa, because I wasn't spending any money. And I got I was paid $300 a day, which I thought was, <laughs> was amazing. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my riches. So get back. And then while I was in MTV, Apple comes out with a new laptop and a program called Final Cut Pro. And I read a bunch of things about it. And I was like, this is interesting, because it purported to allow you to be able to edit broadcast quality video, export it, and do it all on your laptop. Right? So I bought it and started playing with it. And I was like, this looks pretty damn good. I think this works. And so I went down to Atlanta and visited the International Desk. And I remember I visited a guy named Steve Cassidy. I don't know if you ever worked with him. Steve Cassidy, I showed it to him, and he's like, wait, so let me get this straight. You, you're saying you could go in the field with this. You don't have to send all these cases and cases of equipment. You could shoot with a small camera, edit on a laptop, and then put it on the air. I go, I think so. And she said, all right, well, let's get the engineers down here. And so some engineers looked at the footage and they're, they're like, yeah, this, this looks good. So then I came with my proposal to them. I said, why don't you try me out? Let me be a guinea pig. I'll go out in the field as a one-man band, a backpack journalist, and go do stories and send them back. And they went for it. And so that's what I did for the next five years. Wow. It was a wild adventure. And you know, pretty quickly, people realized that this technology was here to stay. And some people were not happy about that either, or not happy about my presence. That was part of the challenge that I had there was, I mean, I think, frankly, some people saw this as a threat. There's some correspondents who thought that this is the last thing I want to be doing is running around with a camera and a backpack to hell with that. And so it had its challenges. i would say. You were a pioneer. I suppose so. I, I think that whether I came along or not, the technology had come along and it was going to be adopted widely quickly
0: well your grandma must have been so proud we, was she still alive to see the stories that you were doing on cnn
1: sadly she was not she died my senior year of high school so no oh. she never she never got to see that worked for cnn
0: oh well i'm sure the rest of your family was really proud
1: Indeed, they've been amazing supporters of mine. That's for sure.
0: So, Jason, you've had quite the career as we're mm-hmm. as we're hearing here, and that career has been recognized. You got the 2006 Journalist of the Year, unbelievable from the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. I mean, not just like getting a medal for a story, but for the year. How did you win that award, Jason, and what was it that helped you win it?
1: So after CNN, I took a job on a program called CBS News on Logo. The Logo was a channel created by MTV to serve the LGBT community. They contracted with CBS News for CBS News to do a news program for them. So I worked for CBS News as the host and correspondent for this program program and this was something really new. The network had just gone on the air. And I felt like I was, you know, taking a pretty considerable risk going and doing this because my parents were, were, were particularly worried. They thought, you're gonna be known forever as a gay journalist. What are you doing why are you doing this? Why do you want people to know all this about you? Da, 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 da. But I felt like and I think one of the reasons I, I did it was because to me it felt courageous. Like a, a courageous thing to do. And so and that's why I told my dad, I was like, look, I feel Like you've always encouraged me to be courageous in my life. And I feel like this is honorable and courageous because this is also a time when LGBT issues were really contentious in America. I know they are still now to some degree, but I mean this is way before gay marriage came along. This is when, you know, we still had don't ask, don't tell policy is when America was really wrestling with and the most reasonable Americans were wrestling with their comfort level. With issues surrounding LGBT rights. And so it was a fascinating time to be delving into those issues, to have it as a beat. I, so basically, I was on the LGBT beat for several years. It was during that that I was honored the Journalist of the Year Award. I think it was because I was the face of something that was very new, a, a broadcast that was done by a mainstream news organization for the LGBT community.
0: Do you think that journalism is a good profession for young LGBT and I'll add Q people to pursue? And by that, I mean, is it an industry in which being LGBTQ is embraced and supported and respected?
1: I would say so. Absolutely. I can tell you that there, there are a lot of us who are in the profession right now. And some of the most highly placed people are gay, lesbian in this profession. And there's a camaraderie among people who are gay journalists. In fact, that award came from the National Lesbian Gay Journalist Association. And through that organization, I've met some very close friends and people who've supported me and people who I've supported. And what I sometimes tell young people is that it can be a real privilege. As Amex used to have as its slogan, membership has its privileges. I feel that way about being gay. Membership has its privileges. You have people who may have struggled with some of the same things that you have, and we're trying to support one another. Maybe that's becoming less of a factor now as, as it's becoming, dare I say, less difficult, thankfully, for many young people. I mean, growing up for me it was a very, very difficult time. I grew up during a very dark period. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic when social acceptance of gay people was not what it is today by any stretch. And so where, you, where most people were still hiding in the closet, right, but I think that it's a great profession to go into because you'll find people who can, who will support you two, I think, if I go sort of deep here for a moment, I mean, I do feel like the gay experience, and I think this is true for many of us, is that we were sort of on the outside looking in, had that feeling. I don't know if young people feel the same way now, but I certainly did. I, on the outside looking in, and kind of analyzing and trying to understand yourself, and having to wrestle with you know deep questions of identity at a young age, and I think it sort of created the empathy that we discussed earlier. That I think is Part and parcel of being a great journalist. I think those factors all play a role in who I am as a reporter and helped shape me into being a better reporter. And that idea of being an observer—that I think helps me helps me every day. That's what I do. Mm,
0: thank you so much for sharing that, Jason. I think it's important for all of us to be able to have those authentic voices put things in perspective for us because for young java junkies today who may well still be struggling for whatever reason with being gay or trans or fill in the blank yeah. they may not for any fault of their own but just not realize how far we have come in this country
1: I <laughs> think that's the truth it's been fascinating to be on this journey uh, that be myself on the journey that America has been, off. It's been one of the amazing transformations of our lifetime is to see the change in attitudes and the change in institutions. And there have been some real heroes in the struggle for America as a whole to understand who we are and that we're everywhere and that we bring a lot to this world.
0: Amen. So, Jason, <laughs> I want to flashback. To when you were a Java junkie in college and you were at yes. Georgetown, is that right? Correct. And you got your BA in history. I'm guessing the answer is yes here. You knew what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated, is that right?
1: Oh, I did. I did very much so. And I had gotten advice from people from through internships who said, just become a great thinker. Read, learn, write. And I loved history. It was my subject and it, where I did most of my you know, reading for pleasure. And, and so it was a great major, great area of study for me because it kind of let you dabble all over the world and study all kinds of different things and follow your curiosity. And... Build your perspective and build your knowledge.
0: Yeah. I wish I had been a history major in college, but that's another story. Jason, were well, there. You,
1: well, you, went, you were lazy. You studied Chinese or something like that,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> well, my major was political science. And then I did study Mandarin and Asian studies as like my concentration. But I wish I had been a history major in hindsight. But Jason, I wanted to ask you what other extracurricular activities or jobs or clubs or whatnot that you May have been involved in when you were at Georgetown. That in hindsight, after you were in the professional world, you said, "Wow, I really learned valuable skills there
1: that are applicable to the real world." Oh, good question. All right, you're having to make make me think back. Well, I was part of the LGBT club at at Georgetown and uh, made some friends there that stayed with me for life. A lot of my time, I think, as I mentioned before, was running around with my own camera doing doing my own story so i wasn't too involved in clubs i never joined the newspaper i was kind of doing my own thing and i also ended up doing freelance work on the side for channel one as a producer i became an odd set of circumstances became their DC producer. Oh wow, which is really weird. I don't think they realized how young I was. I don't know. It was the whole thing was still, still still kind of baffles me how that happened. But that was taking up a lot of my time outside of my studies.
0: Well, let me ask you because you in the espresso shots alluded to having taken off a year when you were an undergrad. When was that and why?
1: So that was after I, I finished my freshman year at Northwestern. I was in the Medill Journalism School, and I was actually going through crisis, kind of an emotional crisis, of an identity crisis. I was at that point deciding, do I want to come out? And I kind of realized that I had to if I was going to be happy in life. And I was just also just kind of I felt a little bit lost at that moment, and and so I was like I just I'm not concentrating well on my studies I don't even know like why I'm in the journalism school but now I want to I don't know what to do with myself I just need to get away and also I was just kind of feeling a little bit burnt out I don't know and I was like I'm just gonna go go somewhere I'm just gonna go just see what happens and so I I bought a plane ticket to Australia and (laughs) didn't have much money left after that and and ended up just sort of hitchhiking my way around and doing jobs here and there Um, it was Really just, just just kind of test myself, just see you know can I can I survive on my own without much money and just see what happens and it took some funny jobs I sold potpourri door to door for <laughs> what, like a month I was a door to door potpourri salesman <laughs> and and I learned some I, I learned some of my most valuable life lesson doing that. There's this guy who's uh, this brilliant guy that I met who was staying at the same hostel that I was and he went out with the van each day to go sell potpourri as well you go to different neighborhoods and the first day I went out there I went door to door very earnestly trying to sell this junk this overpriced junk and came back to the van and I, I had most of my dried flowers and potpourri and this guy Steve this was empty. I was like, what? How? You, we're selling the same thing. How, what did you do differently? And he took a drag of a cigarette and he's like, what are you telling people? And I was like, well, you know, that they're lightly lacquered, scented, da 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 <laughs> And he's like, well, no, that, he's like, you're going about the wrong way. Don't think of yourself as a door-to-door potpourri salesman. Think of yourself as a door-to-door entertainer. I was like, what? And he's like, come up with a shtick. And, and just if you can make people laugh, if you can engage people, they'll buy something from you. It's a token. I was like, ah, okay. All right. I accept this challenge. And so then I started going out and I tried out different material. And I'm I mean, not much of a comedian, but I don't know. I just had fun with it and just tried to connect with people. Every time the door opened, you had to try to assess the person in front of you and be like, okay, well, what's, what's going to keep them from shutting the door on me and have them at least talk to me and engage with me and have a conversation with me. And you know, it's funny, now that I'm talking about, I haven't thought about this for for a long, long time, but I think about it, it's it's a little bit like being a journalist where people are opening the door and you're trying to, as you used the word before, sort of seduce people to keep the door from closing. And you gotta make some snap judgments and develop for. okay, how can I engage this person so that they don't slam the door before they've given me a chance?
0: Mm. That is such a great story,
1: Jason. <laughs> bizarre, bizarre. Right?
0: No, but you know what? It's, it's made up the fabric of your life. And it's obviously influenced the person that you've become. And so interesting. Jason, final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, What advice would you give yourself?
1: Oh, I've thought about this. I've thought about this. One thing I would really wish I had done was master the language. I studied Spanish, but I mean, I, I wish I'd learned Arabic or Chinese. And that would have been, you know, you don't have the time once you graduate from college, or most people don't, I certainly didn't, to be really learning a language and mastering it. Sure, you can do it. And there's lots of great tools for doing it. But you just life's too busy, at least it is for me. College is an opportunity to like, focus in on something being forced and graded on developing mastery of something like that. So I'd I wish I could have done that. I mean, it would have served me very well to learn Arabic, that's for sure, or Chinese. Those are where some of the most important stories of our, time are happening in in those countries and that's one of the challenges when you don't it's more challenging when you don't speak the language that's for sure so that's one thing the other and yeah beyond that i mean i I, rather than what i'd done differently i I wish i'd done even more of the thing i'd done right which was go to office hours and engage with professors. And some of my most memorable experiences were going in to chat about a paper, but you end up talking about other things. And you know that is what what, what you're paying for. You get a a chance to be amongst some really great minds. And the professors, if, if you want to go in and chat with them, that's what they're there for. And I wish I'd even taken more advantage of that than I did.
0: Yeah. Actually, in episode 40, Lauren Zander, who is a really incredible life coach, her recommendation to Java junkies is that they need to be pursuing friendships that you could, basically lifelong friendships that you can develop, not only with your classmates who are exceptional, but also with your professors.
1: Right. Get some one-on-one time. That's what it's about. That I think has been a refrain in my life. Is if you can get some one-on-one time with someone, that's where... That's where exciting things happen, and you never know where that's going to lead.
0: Well, Jason, we know where your career is going to continue to lead, which is... I
1: I, I don't know where it's going, but... uh, I think
0: (laughs) what I mean by that is you are such an exceptional person, clearly unbelievably courageous, not just in some of the stupid things that you've done, (laughs) (laughs) Like when you were in Kosovo and and whatnot, putting your life at risk. But also some of the trailblazing things that you have done as a proud gay man. And I know, Jason, you have a plane ticket. And speaking of wishing that you spoke Arabic, you're headed off to the Arab world tonight. So I wish you a safe journey and look forward to seeing the stories that you're going to be coming back with. Thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today.
1: Thank you, and thank you to your listeners. This has been a major bright spot for my day, that's for sure.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24 7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.